Testament. We are at Ephesians 6.17. Text for this morning is Ephesians 6.17. We'll begin our reading from verse 10 and go through uh, verse 18 of, of Ephesians 6. This is God's holy word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you indeed are holy and righteous. We thank you, Father, that you have provided your people with this full armor. Father, we pray that we would not consider ourselves wiser than you, that you tell us what it is that we need, that you provide it for us. Father, we pray that you might grant your people hope, uh, the hope of eternal life. Father, may we not be satisfied with the worldly hopes that we have. Instead, that we will find true hope in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Father, we thank you, even as he was raised from the grave. We pray that we would have true hope, that we might look forward to our own resurrection, that you will raise us up anew, undefiled, imperishable. Father, we thank you, for you indeed are the mighty one, that you are the one who cleanses us of our sins, that you raise us up anew. Father, we pray that your people would cherish the good news of the gospel more each day, that we would be those who are sanctified by faith in you. Father, we thank you for your provision for us. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit at work in in our lives. We pray, Father, if any have not committed their life to Jesus Christ, we pray that your people would hear and do so. We pray that our Lord Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Perhaps this is not news to you, but there is a widespread hopelessness in our society. It's manifested in depression, in despair, in suicide. These are merely the symptoms of the problem. They're not the problem. They're the symptoms of the problem. The world sees, uh, the world sees all these things as a mental health issue. They look on the surface of the water, and they see this little tip of the iceberg, and they're saying, That's a mental health issue. But what is really the source of it? What is really the issue? Could it be that in, in the majority of these cases, 
a spiritual issue, that of being at enmity with God, being guilt-ridden because of sin, uh, having the fear of death and facing God who is judge, etc., etc. Could it be that those spiritual issues are manifesting itself in a mental health problem? Here we think through some of the challenges that we have. We think about the promises of the gospel, about a people who are without hope and without God in the world. What, what will that look like other than hopelessness, other than doubt, despair, depression, and ultimately suicide? Here, when we think about what the Lord Jesus has provided for us, he has provided for us a solution, and that solution is hope in him. I hope you can see, I hope you can see that the problems that you face in this life is, is not an insufficiency of God, an insufficiency of our Lord Jesus, but rather being able to see Christ in the midst of all those problems. Here, your situation in life. It's not as if you need a better situation in life and that you will have more hope. It's rather that you begin to see how Christ is linked in every one of your problems and that your situation has almost little to do with it. It's being able to see the glory of Christ and clinging to him, having your head in the clouds, having your head already in heaven, though your body is here. Here, we think about the presentation at this last chapter of Ephesians that the Apostle Paul presents to us this armor of God. He presents this, this armor of God <clears throat> not as a closing thought of, by the way, I'm going to tell you about this armor. He's telling us about all the things that have led up to it. That Ephesians 1 through 3, this is what we are to believe about God, about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that if you're believing Ephesians 1 through 3, and that you're obeying God in Ephesians 4 through 6, then this means that you are a threat to the kingdom of Satan. And he will be attacking you. You should expect attacks. And the solution to this is that you would put on the full armor of God. That you will need it. That is, in order to stand firm and withstand in the evil day, you must take up the full armor of God. Not just some of the pieces, but all of them. And in each one of them, may you see your total dependence on Jesus Christ, our Lord, our great protector, our warrior king. So the truth that we see in this verse, to take up the helmet of salvation, is that the helmet of salvation is your hope in God. That through faith and patience you will inherit his promises. The helmet of salvation is your hope in God. That through faith and patience you will inherit his promises. We'll look at this in three points. The first is the enemy of your hope of salvation. <clears throat> Second, the source of your hope of salvation. And third, the characteristics of your hope of salvation. So the first point, the enemy of your hope of salvation. Here... We think back to Paul being imprisoned as he's writing this letter. He's in prison in Rome. He's writing the letter to the Ephesians. And 
The way they had it in Rome, if you were in prison, most likely you were chained to a guard. You got to know this, this other man very well. If you didn't like him, well, that's too bad. You didn't have much of a choice. You can imagine that the Apostle Paul is looking at him and saying, wow, you got this shiny armor. This looks great. And hey, t tell me about your, your helmet. And the helmet has this, like this red plume. Are they feathers or some kind of, uh, uh, it's some, some kind of a red hair of some sort. And uh, the, the helmet was usually one piece made out of metal. There were pieces that came down to protect the sides of your face, uh, the areas that we would call where your mutton chops are. And here we think about how important your head is in battle. A helmet protects the soldier from head injury. And we talked about how hey, we, can't, we can't overlook the feet uh, regarding the gospel footwear. If you take out a, a soldier's foot, that's very important. Uh, what we also can say that his head is of vital importance. A head injury would take him out of a battle. When you think about injuries, <clears throat> If you have an arm or a leg injury, you could, if needed, put on a tourniquet. And this, uh, this might s save you from death and the loss of blood. Uh, it may eventually uh, involve an amputation of a leg or arm, but the life is spared. Last time I checked, you cannot put a tourniquet on your head, like around your neck. That, that's, that's a no-no. Don't do that. Uh, that. That would certainly result in death. That the injury doesn't, the tourniquet around the neck will. The head is also the center of the thoughts. It is precisely where your enemy desires to attack and to do harm. Here we think about the enemies. The enemies, we're told, uh, are in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The enemies, then, are Satan himself. Oftentimes, uh, we have to see that humans, then, are enemies by conscript. They're held captive by Satan to do his will. That's not to say that... Uh, that they're forced to do something they don't choose. Sure, surely a man's will is involved in it, but they are held captive by Satan to do his will. That Satan and his minions, that they are the true enemy. Here, we think about what Satan's desire is. They don't merely want to see you dead or despairing or doubting. They want to see you damned. They want to see you condemned by God that they want to see you outside of heaven. Here, we think about how Satan is the one who is evil. He's violent. He desires to stir up wars, to trip up your feet, to set snares for you. The work of God, instead, that he is the strength of your salvation. God covers your head in the day of battle. We have all this uh, in, in Psalm 140. I think also about the analogy of the helmet as an article of armor. That in your spiritual armor, in Ephesians 6, 17, it's take up the helmet of salvation, meaning put it on. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, we have a, another description about this helmet. And we're told, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So the essential thing for a Christian is that your hope of salvation, 
is of vital importance in the spiritual battle. This is where Satan will attack. You think about a soldier. There are times when soldiers, uh, they have more food, they have more water, they have more supplies, they have more bullets, they have more weapons, but they give up. You think about what the enemy wants. <clears throat> There's something worse than a dead soldier. It's a soldier who's lost his will to fight. That is also contagious. That is why it's worse than a dead soldier. The dead soldier is dead. He doesn't speak anymore. But you think about a soldier who's lost his will to fight, whether out of fear or doubt or discouragement or despair, he's going to start talking to other fellow soldiers. So, so if you think about any warfare, he, he almost has to be separated. And he can't be with the other people. He's, he's going to drag them down. And this is exactly what Satan wants. He, he wants Christians to feel like they're in despair. You are forsaken. You've been forsaken of God. He's given up on you. Hey, you've been praying for your spouse for this many years. What has that spouse ever done to change? This is Satan speaking. Hey, your, your condition is absolutely hopeless. This is, this is like Job's wife. Why don't you curse God and die? These are the words that come from the lips of Satan himself. Don't believe them. Here, a hopeless Christian is a contradiction of terms. Hopeless and lifeless go together. Here, Satan's common means of attack is that his goal is the destruction of your hope of salvation. He uses fear and doubt. Think for a moment about the scene. <clears throat> God had made exceedingly great promises to his people. It began with Abraham. Abraham was able to see this land. He only passed through. He wasn't allowed to live there. He lived in a tent. He stayed in a tent. So you could say he's soldier and he merely passed through. And he says, your descendants will be like the sand of the sea. And they will occupy. They will possess this land. It will be flowing with milk and honey. And years later, you think about the Israelites. Moses led this exodus. A slave people who left a, a superpower nation of, of Egypt. And they didn't leave empty-handed. They left with the riches of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. Numbers 13 and 14. Think about that scene with Joshua and Caleb. God says, hey, pick, pick men out of every tribe. You're going to go in there. We're going to spy out this land. And they came back saying, yes, you're right. This land is filled with milk and honey. But they talk about the people. These walls of the cities are huge. These people, they're like giants. We're like grasshoppers in comparison to them. Numbers 13, 31. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. Oh. For man, it is impossible, but for God, all things are possible. What they were supposed to say is, God, you're right. We can't conquer them, but you told us you would give us this land. And if it means that they will just run off, no, they, they can't do that because they were supposed to slay them. The bottom line is, God, you will accomplish it. Here, listen further 
of what they said. Numbers 14.2, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? What they were saying was, it is impossible that God would be true to his promise and bring us into the promised land. What did God eventually say? It was Caleb who said, no, 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 wait a minute. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. But God, you promised us this land. We will conquer these people by your power. You think about how we extrapolate that to the present, to the work of the church. Are we going to be gripped by that same hopelessness and despair, this doom and gloom? This must not be us. This must not be God's people. Think about what they said further. Numbers 14.3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? What type of evil motives are you attributing to the Lord as you consider your own situation? Here, you think about God's promises. Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. God is the God of all hope. We must not be overcome with doubt, with despair. Here, we must think about what God wants for us. For Israel to say, it is better for us to die in the wilderness. It is better for us to return to Egypt. Is as if... You and I would be saying, you know, my life before Christ is actually better than it is now. May none of us ever think that or say that. Life must be better in Christ. We should never go back. Here, we think about the responses to fear and doubt. And you think about the promises of Scripture that might give you hope. Romans 8, 35 the 37. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Here we think about the Apostle Paul even as he describes this situation. Either Paul was a lunatic or he is someone who is believing the promises of God. Here, we think also about shame and guilt. Satan desires to use shame and guilt to bring you down. <clears throat> but yet, our Lord Jesus is one who has given us exceedingly great promises. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do you do with your guilt? You bring it to the Lord Jesus. You confess it. And you receive forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You repent of your sins. You can have true hope of forgiveness. Here, we think about how we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. All the riches that our Lord Jesus has received... He gladly shares it with you as a sinner who is trusting in him. This is good news. What you have not earned, 
you will receive the great riches that Jesus promised, that they are yours in Christ. You receive it by faith. This is the first point, the enemies of your hope of salvation. We have second point, the source of your hope of salvation. Man is not the source of his own hope. If you are the source and you are the object of your own hope, then you are hopeless. That's the definition of hopelessness. If hope begins and ends in us and our focus is on ourselves, the inevitable situation will be hopelessness. It can't be your own works. It can't be your own strength that are your hope. Just as faith must have the right object, so also must hope. We read earlier in Psalm 71, verse 5, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth, that we must acknowledge that our hope is God. Here, we ask, well, wait a minute. Isn't there such thing as, I mean, isn't there hope even for for non-Christians, for carnal men? Well, there must be, because Suicide is the inevitable result when someone is hopeless for long. All men must have hope in order to continue in life. Here we think about the high rates of suicide today, and it is the result of this long-term hopelessness. Even non-Christians must have hope in something, whether it be material or financial gain, or their achievements, or academic accomplishments, or their relationships. They must have hope in order to continue. But we ask, is that necessarily necessarily a legitimate hope? Is that a lasting hope? I remember back in high school, even reading in my psychology textbook, I remember, because they uh, they used this, you know, kind of like this King James language, that there was a syndrome called the better than thou syndrome. That carnal men can go on in life because they see that they are actually better off than others. That there's someone, uh, there's someone else in life who's, who's worse off than them, and this is part of a, a carnal hope. Here we think even about the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Wasn't that this better than thou? Wasn't that what he was banking on? Mm-hmm. Luke 18.11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Essentially, he he was having this better-than-thou syndrome applied within a spiritual context. That, hey, I'm better off than that guy, spiritually. But the carnal man, we must warn, is without true hope, for he is without hope in God. That is the warning in Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here, perhaps you're wondering, we've been talking about hope and we've been using this term, how do we define it? The scriptures mention hope, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, obviously there, faith and hope must somehow be linked. Uh, Faith is the mother of hope. That true Christian hope is founded in God alone, and that you will inherit God's promises through faith. So, hope must necessarily look to the promises of God. And 
the means of that is God's word. God has spoken in his word. He's made exceedingly great promises to us. And our hope is banking on those promises, trusting that we will receive those promises of God exactly as he has promised to us. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That God has promised, promised us certain things, and we're holding fast to that confession of hope, saying we will receive it exactly as our Lord has promised us. In hope, there is necessarily something missing. What's missing is sight. The scriptures mention this, Romans 8, 24 to 25. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So the scriptures there are saying that hope cannot be in the things that we already see, that are already a reality. Hope is in something further, something out there in time. Trusting that you will receive it. That's the very uh, situation about Abraham. That his hope, uh, he, he believed God that he would receive, his descendants would receive the promised land. And he was even looking past that. He trusted that God is one who provided him the true city. That's the hope of heaven. Here, regarding the source of your hope, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in your hope of salvation. That God is the object of your hope. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because in Christ you are born again, born from above, then you have a living hope. This is in contrast to a dead hope. You have a living hope. It, it is what energizes you. It's what helps you to get up in the morning. It's because you have hope that what you do is of significance, that God will guide it, that God will bless you in it. Here, I ask you, people of God, are you lacking hope in this life? Realize that our God calls sinners to a living hope in Jesus Christ. He is the one who reminds you that Jesus resurrected. He is raised from the grave. Death cannot contain him. That he was raised to life that you might be justified before him. That you should trust in him. That his promises are sure. And you ask, well, what about the abundance of my sins? Well, the promise of the gospel is that your sins are washed clean only in Jesus Christ. And he commands you that you would believe upon his promise by faith, that you would receive it and trust that what he has promised you, he has and will fulfill on. So God, God the Father is the object of your hope. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of your hope. Second Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17 now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, 
comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. The Lord Jesus Christ has given you eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Christ is with you. Christ accompanies you. He has said that, that he is one who is with you even to the end. We also have the power of the Holy Spirit, that he is also the source of your hope. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill, with you, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope is a product of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. By the Holy Spirit's doing. By the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. You will have hope. And you will continue on. So this is the second point. The source of your hope of salvation. We have the third point. The characteristics of your hope of salvation. Who has this hope? This hope is for the Christian, for all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've already learned that the Christian life is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the cowardly. And if you haven't, then you will need to learn that. That there are many, or at least some, who in the Christian life, they've said, I've given up. They have not continued on. They have the ones who have said, wait a minute, I thought becoming a Christian means that my life will become easier. I'll get all the things that I want. No, that wasn't the promise. The promise was that in this life you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer because Christ is the one who has overcome the world. Here, we think about the words of William Gurnall. He describes this regarding hope. He says, Most men are more tender of their skin than conscience, and had rather the gospel had provided armor to defend their bodies from death and danger than their souls from sin and Satan. I ask you, people of God, what is it that you seek in Christ? Is it that you seek that he will protect your tender skin? Or is it that you seek that he will protect you from sin and Satan? Sin and Satan brings the, the, uh, the injury to body. Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, in your striving against sin. We ought to understand in the spiritual battle, you very well will be bloodied and bruised, battered and torn. But even so, are you maintaining hope? Hope in Christ. The mother of hope is faith. True faith gives birth to hope in your life. Hope. The characteristic is that it must be coupled with sanctification. For hope purifies the soul. We're told that in 1 John 3.3. 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
So what does hope do then? Hope is working in your life so that you are being purified. Hope is also manifested in the praising of God, the giving of thanks and rejoicing. We read earlier in Psalm 71, verse 5, that God is our hope. And the result is that my praise is continually of you. That's what, that's what the psalmist says, that because he has hope in God, that we're continually praising God, giving thanks to him in our situations. It's not a function of our situation, that's a function of our environment changing, but rather hope gives us sight, uh, faith to see Christ in the midst of those problems. Here, you think about how prayer, how God's word helps us. It's not that it changes our environment. We think changing the environment will fix our situation. More often than not, the Lord doesn't do that. The Lord is changing us because we're the ones who need to change. Our outlook, our optimism, our hope. Hope is characterized by diligence and faithfulness even in the lowliest of service. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever heard this? Where people say, hey, uh, I don't like the meager responsibility that I've been given, whether in the church, whether in the home, whether in the workplace. And the claim is, hey, I will do a much better job if I'm given more responsibility. What do you respond to that? The answer is, he who is faithful with little can be faithful with much. He who is not faithful with little cannot be faithful with much. And that true hope understands that faithfulness, even in the smallest thing, is what is pleasing to God. Hope enables a quiet spirit when fulfillment of God's promises are delayed. This is what happens in life. That we ask God, we plead his promises, and he doesn't answer us immediately. But what is God doing then in your life when this happens to you? If difficulty and affliction comes, you pray to God, and then you check tomorrow or next week, and there's no change. What God is doing is he's stretching you, he's pulling you, and this develops patience in us that this develops patience so that we might trust, that we might hope in his promises all the more. At times it's painful, but you realize that your hope won't grow unless God does that. Hope keeps a Christian patient in the worst of sufferings. It is especially then that you and I come to learn what our true comfort is. When you think about 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that the Apostle Paul speaks about God as the God of all comfort. And then he says to the Corinthians that how he's learned about this God of comfort so that we might comfort you and any others who have affliction. How, how are we going to patch a wound unless we know, hey, this is the best patch I've ever had. It's the comfort of God, the comfort of Jesus Christ. You have pain, 
I have a solution. It's my comfort. May it be yours also. Hope. Hope also results in your stability in life. We read earlier, our elder did, in Hebrews chapter 6, that hope is an anchor to your soul. It what, it's what gives you stability in life. As the winds blow, as the hurricane comes, your hope is what keeps you stable. So you're not rocked when uh, rumors and bad news comes your way. Hope. Hope is central to and the means of your witness before men. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You see that same issue come up in Psalm 71. When others see you, we're told you have become a portent, meaning you, you, you stick out like a sore thumb because people would say, hey, look at the difficulty in that person's life. Look at the suffering that God has brought upon him or her. This person should be cursing God, but yet you're rejoicing. So then people wonder, hey, what is the reason for your hope? And this hope then is central to your effective witness before others. Why are you not in despair? And that is your platform. I'm not in despair because I have hope in Jesus Christ. Without him, I would be. I would be in despair. I would have ended my life already, or whatever it is. And you think about how essential hope is in regarding the motivation to witness before others. What you're doing when you tell others about Christ is you're telling them about your true hope. Here, we think about the fulfillment of this hope, Romans 5.5. 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God has given the Holy Spirit to you as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. And it's because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit that you must have true hope. May we give thanks to our God that he sustains his people in hope. That though difficulty comes our way, we have reason to believe there is something to live for. There is Jesus to live for. That our God has promised us great things and that he will deliver exactly as he said. That you and I can continue on in life because we know that our God is true. He cannot lie. And that he has given us a true hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is resurrected from the dead. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father.